Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I am your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we've got a review of the Oscar-nominated film, The Worst Person in the World. Speaking of the Oscars, the nominees were just announced the other day, so I'll also give a few thoughts on those nominations. And to wrap up the episode, we continue our series looking at religious deconstruction through film, with a discussion about a 2001 film starring Ryan Gosling called The Believer. Stay tuned. That was the trailer for the Norwegian film The Worst Person in the World from director Joachim Trier and starring Renata Reinsva and Anders Danielson Lee. This film was recently nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, as well as Best Original Screenplay, and Renata Reinsva won Best Actress this year at the Cannes Film Festival. I knew relatively little going into The the Worst Person in the World, aside from the awards buzz, but I was very pleasantly surprised by this film. The story follows Julie through several stages in her life, and the opening text of the film informs us that the story is told in 12 chapters with a prologue and an epilogue. So we then get a series of vignettes, some pretty lengthy, some surprisingly short, depicting moments in Julie's life. And the chapters have titles like Chapter 10 is called First Person Singular, or some more provocatively titled like Chapter 8 is called Julie's Narcissistic Circus, or most provocatively of all, chapter three is called Oral Sex in the Age of Me Too. My big takeaway from this film is that central performer, Renata Reinsva, who plays Julie, she is an incredibly versatile actor in this film. We see her when she's feeling content, we see her when she's flirting, we see her experiencing transcendent joy and deep sadness, and late in the film, some very complex emotions, somewhere between wistfulness and grief. She's insanely watchable and holds the screen with a sort of naturalism that I found completely engaging. It's a beautiful performance. The film is largely about relationships, and not just romantic ones. There are some wonderful insights about romance, though, like the scene early on when Julie crashes a wedding and meets a man with whom she feels 
an immediate connection, despite the fact that she's been in a happy relationship with her comic book artist boyfriend, Axel, for years. She ends up talking with this other man all evening, and the two have a flirtatious conversation about what constitutes cheating and what doesn't. If I hug you, is it cheating? What if I touch your arm? What if I sniff your arm? It gets kind of weird, uh, but this scene is incredibly tense because we wonder how far things will go between them, but at the same time, it's very funny and it's remarkable to watch the spark of mutual attraction unfold between them. And it serves as a sort of deconstructive look at love and relationships by dialing down into what sorts of interaction we generally consider to be okay and what crosses those invisible lines. It's very exciting filmmaking. But outside of the romantic relationships, the film is concerned with family and with family history. Some of the best moments of Renata Reinsva's performance as Julie come when she's wordlessly processing her feelings towards her father, with whom her relationship has always been deeply disappointing. And one of my very favorite moments in the whole film comes fairly early on at Julie's 30th birthday. There's a narrator throughout the film filling in details of Julie's life, and in the 30th birthday scene, the narration really caught me off guard by delving into Julie's family tree. The narrator tells us what Julie's mother was doing when she turned 30, and at first I thought it was going to stop there, just to sort of demonstrate that Julie's mother had accomplished much more on paper by this age as a way to illustrate Julie's own unspoken feelings of inadequacy. But it doesn't stop there. We then learn what her grandmother was doing at age 30, and her great-grandmother, and her great-great-grandmother, and so on, back five or six generations, ending by informing us that Julie's great-great-great-great-grandmother didn't live to the age of 30, and that the life expectancy at that time was only 35. I was really bowled over by this scene, which at once gave us incredible context about Julie, and also served to connect the story to a larger history and place Julie and ourselves in relation to something much bigger. I've talked before about loving films that connect big things to small things. My go-to example is Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, which looks at the history of the universe, the biggest thing possible, and at the experience of one child, and it sees those two things as equally important. I didn't expect to get this feeling from the worst person in the world, and it's especially fitting for this film to give us a moment like that because otherwise the film is about all of life in a way, and a wide array of emotions that we will feel over a lifetime. The film depicts the way that choices and experiences from childhood continue to resonate for our entire lives. All of this grows out of what is ostensibly a small relationship drama, but becomes so much more than that. Aside from all the full circle elements to this film that I found so rewarding, the script is also just full of clever observations about gender, about art, about family dynamics. All of the various elements of this film build to an ending that is a mixture of introspection and heartache, operating on both an emotional level and an intellectual one, and it really took my breath away. I absolutely loved The Worst Person in the World, and that's why I gave it five stars out of five. The Worst Person in the World is now available in limited theatrical release and will likely come to streaming or video on demand in the coming weeks. When I'm watching a movie, I love to have a little snack. 
and I'm a big, big fan of popcorn. I recently discovered a company who makes popcorn I love so much, I decided to become an affiliate. So yes, this is an ad, but I will never try and sell you on something I don't love myself. The product is called Opop Pop. They make flavor-wrapped popcorn kernels, which means you can get a variety of tasty flavors on your popcorn straight from the microwave without having to pop and season it yourself on the stove. It comes in savory and sweet flavors like salted umami, vanilla cake pop, cinnalicious, which is like a cinnamon roll, and spicy cheddar. Right now, they also have some delicious holiday flavors, and you can try them all and get 10% off your first order by going to arthousegarage.com popcorn, and the link is in the show notes. All right, back to the show. Well, the Oscar nominations came out last week, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk through a few categories and who I think should win. I like to preface all Oscar talk with a disclaimer that I think award shows in general hold too much power and really shouldn't matter half as much as they do. So I encourage people each year not to take too seriously the winners and losers and snubs of the Oscars. I saw the other day that Seth Rogen said something along these lines in an interview saying that people care too much what awards the film industry gives itself. He compared it to other industries. He said something like, I don't pay attention to which cars win the annual car awards. Why would people put so much stock into film awards? I think he's got an excellent point there. But at the same time, I really enjoy all the hubbub and I make sure to watch the Oscars every year. And for all the awards campaigning and other BS that goes on behind the scenes, on some level, the Oscars ceremony is a genuine celebration of cinema. And for that, I love it. So, First, let's talk about the films that did not get nominated. My personal film of the year, Come On, Come On, came away with nothing, as did some of my other favorites, The Green Knight, Memoria, Petite Maman, and A Hero. None of these are that surprising, uh, though I would have loved to see Come On, Come On or Petite Maman up for a writing award, or The Green Knight for costume design or production design. But as mentioned, I don't care all that much, so I'm not too upset. Let's look at what was nominated in a few of the major categories. First up, um, international feature film. The nominees are Drive My Car, Flea, The Hand of God, Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, and The Worst Person in the World. I've seen all of these except for Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, which comes from the South Asian nation of Bhutan. But the other four I do think are very deserving. Um, I think that Drive My Car will probably win which I'm very happy with, although I, if I was voting, which I'm not, would probably vote for Flea. Flea is unusual because it spans some categories that you don't often see together. So not only is it an international film made in Denmark, but it's an animated documentary. So it's nominated for international feature, animated feature, and best documentary. It's a bit of an outlier in the animated feature category just because it's not a family film. It's nominated alongside Encanto, Luca, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. I actually really like all of these films, but I do hope that Flea wins. I also think Mitchells vs. The Machines would be an excellent choice. It is so inventive visually, um, and I have a deep love for Luca. In the documentary category, we have Flea, Summer of Soul, Ascension, 
Attica, and Riding with Fire. Flea and Summer of Soul are the only films I've seen in this category so far. And despite how much I love Flea, my vote in this category would have to go to Summer of Soul, which is just transcendently wonderful. Let's look at the acting categories. For Supporting Actress, the nominees are Jesse Buckley in The Lost Daughter, Ariana DeBose in West Side Story, Judy Dench in Belfast, Kirsten Dunst in The Power of the Dog, and Anjanu Ellis in King Richard. I have not caught up with King Richard just yet, so I cannot comment on Anjanu Ellis, but the rest of these are very strong. It's not a huge surprise that Kirsten Dunst is nominated because The Power of the Dog is nominated for just about everything. But I'm very glad that she is included because she, for me, is the strongest part of that film. And I was pleasantly surprised to see Jessie Buckley for The Lost Daughter. Her role is really vital to the success of that film, and she's quite good in it. If I was voting, though, I would ultimately have to go with Ariana DeBose in West Side Story. She plays Anita, and as incredible as that film is from top to bottom, she manages to be a standout and my favorite performer in the film. I really hope that she wins this one. For lead actress, it's Jessica Chastain in The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman in Being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart in Spencer. I am so happy to see Kristen Stewart nominated here. It really seemed like she was being shut out uh, because she was not nominated in any of the other major award shows this year for her portrayal of Princess Diana in that film, so it was a surprise to see her make this list. I also love Jessica Chastain in The Eyes of Tammy Faye, but my vote would actually go to Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter. She's just such a wonderful performer. She does so much with her face and her eyes without words. She's one of the finest actors we've got, and she is my favorite from this bunch. Looking at supporting actors, we've got Syrian Hines in Belfast, Troy Kotzer in Coda, Jesse Plemons in The Power of the Dog, J.K. Simmons in Being the Ricardos, and Cody Smith-McPhee in The Power of the Dog. I have not watched Being the Ricardos yet, so I can't comment on that one, but the others I think are all pretty good. Both Troy Kotzer in Coda and Syrian Hines in Belfast are examples of really great performers in films that I was overall lukewarm on but I would be happy if either of them won. And the other two are from The Power of the Dog, Jesse Plemons and Cody Smith-McPhee, both of whom I thought were solid, but neither of whom I'm that excited about. I don't really lean any particular direction in this category. This is one where if I had my way, I'd bring in someone from one of my favorite films, and that would be Woody Norman. He's the child actor who plays Jesse in Come On, Come On. He's just a kid, but he's doing very mature work, He's a great example of a strong supporting role because the film absolutely needs that Jesse character to work, even though he's not the lead. But I digress. If I had to vote for one of the nominees we got, I guess I would go with Syrian Hines in Belfast. He's a great actor in so many things, and that film is best when he's on the screen. And lead actor. The nominees are Javier Bardem in Being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield in Tick, Tick, Boom, Will Smith for King Richard, and Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. My guess is that Benedict Cumberbatch has this one locked up, and I think that's fine, though my favorite from this bunch is Denzel in The Tragedy of Macbeth. He's great at the Shakespearean dialogue, 
And he also just looks amazing in that film. Denzel has this gravitas that he's always had, but it seems to only get stronger with age. And that makes him such a perfect match for the character of Macbeth. I also think it would be really cool if Andrew Garfield won, even though I actually have not watched Tick, Tick, Boom just yet. I just like the guy. Also, as mentioned, I need to catch up with King Richard still. But just in general, I think it would be great if Will Smith did finally win because he's been nominated a few times before. As for Best Director, we've got Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story, and Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. I think it's great that Drive My Car has so many nominations this year. It is incredible, and I would love to see the Oscar go to Hamaguchi. I would also be more than happy with Steven Spielberg or Paul Thomas Anderson taking this one, but it seems like it will probably go to Jane Campion. I do think that that's deserving, even if I wasn't as high on that film as a lot of people seem to be. And finally, let's talk about Best Picture. The nominees are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. For me, the best films on this list are West Side Story and Drive My Car. If I were to put these into tiers, those would be my top tier. Just below that, I would put Nightmare Alley, Licorice Pizza, and The Power of the Dog. It's films that I thought were very strong. A step down from there, films that I thought were good but not great, Dune, Coda, and Belfast. And then the one film that I just outright did not like is Don't Look Up, though I'm not surprised that it is nominated. And again, I still have not watched King Richard. I would love for Drive My Car or West Side Story to win Best Picture. I don't think that's going to happen. It will probably be The Power of the Dog, based on how many other big awards that film has been winning. And I'll be happy with that. It is a very good film, just not one that I'm terribly excited about. I also plan to watch it a second time before the ceremony, so my opinion of the film could change on a second viewing. We shall see. And I think that is plenty of Oscars talk for now. So let's move on to my favorite segment called What Have You Been Watching Lately? in which I give brief reactions to the other films and TV I've watched in the last two weeks. There's just a few things this time. First up is the latest film from Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar, starring Penelope Cruz. This is Parallel Mothers. Cruz was just nominated for Best Lead Actress for her role in this film, and the film was also nominated for Best Score. I really like this film. I've seen somewhat mixed reactions to it online, but I was generally a fan. I do think Penelope Cruz is great in the film, as is the other mother of the title, played by Melina Smith. The story follows two mothers in Madrid named Janice and Anna. They meet in the hospital and give birth on the same day, and they form a friendship that continues for many years. There are some extremely dramatic twists and turns in this film, and I was here for most of it, but more than that, I like the way this film looks lovingly at motherhood and at the parts of motherhood that aren't often depicted on the big screen. We see Janice wrestling with whether she should try to go back to work. There are several shots of some very cute babies, and it really gives you a sense of the bond between a mother and a child. Late in the film, one character becomes almost a surrogate mother to another, and 
there's a lovely scene that involves a cooking lesson. Another interesting aspect to this film is the way it brings in Spanish history and some of the generational problems facing modern Spanish people. There's a bit of a history lesson and an interesting one, though it doesn't tie into the story quite as neatly as I wish it had, and it feels a bit tacked on. That said, I was generally positive on this film, and I gave it three and a half stars out of five on Letterboxd. Parallel Mothers is now playing in theaters. Next up, I rewatched a modern classic, The Social Network. This is partly because of my renewed interest in Andrew Garfield, who is great in this film, but also because I recently used some Christmas money on a film purchase. It's volume two of the special edition Columbia Pictures Blu-ray sets, and it includes this film on 4K for the first time. It looks amazing in 4K, and the writing, direction, and performances all hold up wonderfully. This is maybe my favorite thing Aaron Sorkin has ever written, uh, and I'm also a big fan of the soundtrack and just this movie in general. It's really interesting to consider the impact Facebook has continued to have since the film's release way back in 2010. The Social Network is streaming on Netflix right now, and I gave it four and a half stars on this revisit. I also finally watched a Netflix film I've been meaning to get to for weeks now, The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, and Jesse Buckley. It's also the directorial debut from Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think this film is great. Olivia Coleman, I've already mentioned, is one of the best actors working, in my humble opinion, and this role gives her so much weighty emotional stuff to wade into. She plays Lita, a woman vacationing on her own on an island off the coast of Greece. She gets unexpectedly involved with a large family in this island town when their daughter wanders off one day at the beach, causing a panic, and Lita finds her. This experience triggers all sorts of feelings from Lita's past, and we get many flashbacks to her challenging days as a young parent. Jesse Buckley plays the younger version of Lita, and the film, maybe in a similar way to Parallel Mothers, is about motherhood and depicts some of the hardest parts of parenting, and especially the expectations put on mothers that are generally not placed on fathers. Lita feels pressure to put her children ahead of her career, though this is not her natural inclination at all, and we gradually learn about her past as she navigates her strange relationship with Dakota Johnson's Nina, who plays the mother of the young girl lost on the beach. It's a heavy film, somewhat dour, but I really found the themes about motherhood to be powerful, and the film couldn't be better performed. I gave The Lost Daughter 4.5 out of 5 stars, and that is now streaming on Netflix. And finally, on the TV side, I'm a pretty big fan of the show Sex Education on Netflix, and I finally caught up with Season 3, which dropped a few weeks ago. If you don't know anything about this show, it's a high school drama, and it's about as good as high school dramas get, at least in my experience. The show's main character is Otis, a teenage boy played by Asa Butterfield, and his mother, Jean, played wonderfully by Gillian Anderson, is a sex therapist. Because of this, Otis knows more about sex than most people his age. In the first season of the show, Otis realizes that many of his classmates at his British high school struggle with a variety of sexual issues, and because the school doesn't educate students about such things, he and another student, Maeve, open a secret sex therapy clinic on campus. From there, things get messy, as you might expect, and the drama of the show has continued for three seasons now, 
For my money, it just keeps getting better and better. There's a wide array of characters in the show, most of whom are quite well written and charmingly performed. In fact, charming is probably the best word to describe this show. It's funny while maintaining enough dramatic heft to stay interesting, and its recurring theme of sex positivity sets it apart from other similar shows. So if a British high school drama is something you think you'd enjoy, I highly recommend checking out Sex Education on Netflix. And that is what I've been watching lately. And now it is time to continue our latest film series. We've been looking at religious deconstruction with the help of cinema. The series is called The Art of Deconstruction, Faith, Doubt, and Film. And for each episode, I've been inviting a different guest to come and tell us about their faith and how their faith has changed over the years. And after that, we discuss a film of the guest's choosing that resonates with their spiritual life. It's been so rewarding so far. We've looked at films like Winter Light, Silence, and Boy Erased. And today, the series continues with a look at a very interesting film called The Believer, starring Ryan Gosling. First, a little about today's guest. His name is Aaron Van Voris, and he's the teaching pastor at Central Avenue Church in Glendale, California. I think calling the church progressive is a bit of an oversimplification, but just to give you an idea, Central Avenue Church is queer-affirming, has statements in support of Black Lives Matter on their website, and doesn't require any statement of belief to be a member. And in fact, you don't even have to be a Christian. So it's just a little different than the Southern Baptist churches I grew up in. Aaron is incredibly kind and thoughtful and has some very interesting things to say, especially as it pertains to the film he selected, and that film is The Believer. It came out in 2001, written and directed by Henry Bean. The film stars Ryan Gosling as Danny, who is a neo-Nazi, and we learn is also Jewish. The film opens with Danny alone in his apartment, working out, wearing a swastika t-shirt, and he flashes back to his days in Hebrew school, learning about Abraham and Isaac. As the story progresses, Danny and his neo-Nazi friends decide they want to take drastic and violent action for their cause when Danny unexpectedly feels some pull back to his old way of life. It's a fascinating film, very well written, and it really gets into the weeds of both Jewish doctrine and neo-Nazi ideals. So, it's a challenging film, but one that I found very rewarding. By the way, if you feel you want to watch the film before listening, you can pause and go stream the film on Tubi TV, which is a free ad-supported streaming service. Also, content warning for this conversation, we do talk about anti-Semitism quite a bit, as well as some of the violent and terroristic acts depicted in the film. We do keep the conversation spoiler-free, so if you haven't seen it, feel free to listen. But then I actually recorded a little bit of spoiler talk, but then I cut that off and stuck it right at the very end of the episode. So if you would like to hear us talk about the ending, wait until the very end after the music and the credits, and you'll hear a little bit of spoiler talk at the very end. Okay, let's get into it. You're about to hear some of the trailer audio, followed by my discussion with Aaron Van Voris about the 2001 film, The Believer. Hello? Daniel Balin. Mm -hmm. I'm a reporter. Reporter for who? New York Times. People hate Jews, do you agree? The very word makes their skin crawl. 
they undermine traditional life, and they deracinate society. You can take the greatest Jewish minds ever. Marx, Freud, Einstein, what have they given us? Communism, infantile sexuality, and the atom bomb. Danny, this is great, but how can you believe all of this when you're a Jew yourself? You're not like the others, are you? I want you to teach it to me. Why? No, you're enemy. You want to know the real reason why we hate them? Because they exist. We have all the reasons we need in three simple letters. J, E, W, Jew. You say it a million times, it's the only word that never loses its meaning. How can you wear that thing? Do you know what it means to your people? To know my people. Hit me! Hit me! Hit me, please! Are you out of your mind? Welcome to the podcast, Aaron Van Voris. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. Uh, so we met through Andrew Bocock, who was on the podcast a few episodes back, and uh, you used to be his pastor. So um, it's an interesting connection. And I, um, so we've talked just once before, and you told me a little bit about your church. And um, so I would love to to hear more about that and, sure. and just kind of tell us about you and before we get into kind of the faith journey stuff. So yeah, uh, tell us what's the name of your church again and sure. um, tell us about it. Central Avenue Church, and it's located in Glendale, California, which is kind of part of Los Angeles, you could say. And so Central basically began as a rehabilitation project for for a dying or dead, I guess you could call it, Southern Baptist Church mm-hmm. that um, essentially saw the writing on the wall and decided to hire me right out of Fuller Seminary to help them basically change everything. I, I was hired with the mandate to help them basically become a more progressive community and to leave the Southern Baptist tradition and to change the name of the church and basically do like a church plant in, in an yeah, old Southern sure. Baptist church building. So 12 years ago, so this was late 2009, I was hired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I was hired with that mandate, which was kind of cool. It's as if somebody threw the keys to the building at me and said, here, do something with this. Uh, yeah. wow. th- there was, you know, I don't want to, I'm trying to make a long story short, I guess. I don't want to, get too much in the weeds of it all. I mean, there was definitely kind of a power struggle early on because the majority of people, and when I say the majority, I mean the majority of 20 people that were left in that (laughs) church, the majority of them wanted to uh, change um, the things that I wanted to change, but there was a powerful minority of the founders. These are people in their 80s, you know, (laughs) they were in their 80s and 90s that didn't really want to change that much. And so there were some power struggles early on. But anyway, uh, over the course of uh, two, three years, we, we you know, cut our ties with the Southern Baptist, changed the name, you know, changed a lot of the aesthetics and, and ministry stuff uh, and, and slowly kind of became more progressive as we went. I mean, I, I began with this, with this vision that I just wanted to make an intellectually honest Christian community. And for me, that meant at the time being really open and honest about things like science, different understandings of the Bible, um, not, you know, preaching, you know, any kind of fire and brimstone kind of, uh, you know, getting away from any kind of uh, hell language or sin language, you know, it no longer, I, you know, I no longer believe that one had to convert to Christianity in order to 
get to a good place in the afterlife. Uh, you know, so we, we began from sort of a progressive place like that, but over the last seven, eight years, we became even more progressive and got, and got more focused on, you know, speaking about social justice issues. Mm-hmm. We became a fully affirming congregation, meaning of course, fully affirming to the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big shift for us. Um, so, but we became, I want to say a church of a lot of ex-evangelicals, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s coming out of more traditional backgrounds, and even coming out of more like the hipster neoconservative churches in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, like Mosaic, Reality, um, some of those, I don't know if they're mega churches, but they're large congregations of a lot Mm of, you know, it's hipster um, stuff, but it's still kind of like neoconservative, whereby, you know, they're not affirming of same-sex relationships. They're they still teach a kind of exclusive Christian supremacist view of things, right? Mm -hmm. That Christianity is really the best religion in the world and the way to God and all that. So anyway, Central became sort of an alternative to that for those coming out of those traditions, wanting to seek a more progressive and open-minded and intellectually honest faith. So we became more and more, I would say, radical in the sense that I I got into what's called radical theology through the work of Peter Rollins. This is like six Mm. years ago, where I began to think of my own personal faith. I grew up Pentecostal. I grew up fundamentalist. And over um, basically from 2001 to, you know, 2015, I really went through, you know, that's a 14 year process. I really went through deconstruction. And and, and in my opinion, once you're in deconstruction, you never really exit. You basically live in a, in a place of, of, you know, constant inquiry, constant skepticism, which is great, but it also can be, you know, unsettling at first. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so I, I went through a period of deconstruction where I, I came to a place in my own faith journey where I, I came to understand Christianity and faith as less of a set of um, confessional beliefs, but more uh, as, an, as a way of living, meaning a way of trying to live justly in the world, trying to live in a, in a loving way, especially towards those who have been historically marginalized and oppressed, mm-hmm. especially by people like me, white, mm-hmm. Christian, straight men, you know, mm-hmm. um, so my understanding of faith became more about a way of living rather than a way of believing, which some would describe as is pretty radical um, in that um, I no longer make, you know, really strong claims about the existence of God, or even though I'm not an atheist, I, I also wouldn't say that I'm a theist. I'm kind of post-theistic. Uh, if I had to be labeled, I suppose you could say that I fall into the camp of pantheism or panentheism, but there's no real strong theological commitment there. It's not like I am, mm-hmm. you know, really yeah. firm in those because for me, belief became more um, about, you know, for me, I, I think belief is enigmatic. I think belief is esoteric. I think beliefs are unconscious. I don't think we really, uh, I would say, I believe, I don't really know what I believe. And I believe mm-hmm. you don't really know what you believe mm-hmm. because again, yeah. Belief is a motive. Belief is enigmatic. Belief is unconscious. It's our, what we claim are our beliefs about things like God, the supernatural. You know, th- these are really just stories I think we like to tell ourselves about ourselves so that we can, mm-hmm. you know, fit into the tribe or sleep better at night or deal with life's inherent anta- antagonisms and anxieties. Again, a lot of that I get from, you know, thinkers like Peter Rollins, Slavoj Zizek, um, 
and other luminaries of the radical theology tradition. And we can get more into what that's about, but it's about really embracing, unknowing, embracing um, our, our, our finitude, our mortality, our lack, uh, and, and making peace with those things. And that's kind of faith. That's, that's a kind of courageous way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that's deeply intertwined with Christianity through, through the symbolism of the cross, through, through the symbolism mm. of the death of God in the world. I think the cross signifies, in, in a lot of ways, the death of the God of religion, uh, the death of the God of, of religious certitude, and sort of the resurrection of a God of love, pure love, uh, resurrection of a God or, or a sacred way of being in the world uh, as the hands and feet of Christ in the world. Uh, living out of the virtues of Christ. That for me is, is faith and religion and Christianity today. So that's, that's who I am. That's, that's the community we've really formed at Central. Mm-hmm. Central is not, I want to be very clear, not monolithic in the sense of not everybody believes like me, not everybody thinks about these things like I do. Uh, there is no doctrinal statement to adhere to at Central. We run the gamut from people with, you know, with, with some more conservative beliefs, meaning they might still really believe in the resurrection and miracles and the supernatural mm-hmm. all the way to people who would identify more as atheists. Um, Central really has all, all of that and everything in between. And so that's, that's, that's the community we are. That's my faith journey in short. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so interesting because I think there's so many people uh, like myself who, you know, have come from a more dogmatic fundamentalist religion right. and, there's a little bit of a sense of like, what now, as it comes to believing or beliefs and, and theology, but also like, where's my spiritual community? And um, like, okay, what if I find myself an atheist? I Now I don't have this community that I used to have uh, in my, you know, very fundamentalist church. And so I think it's so interesting to have spaces like that. And um, um, I, I'm sure there are other churches out there like that. Yes. And I, and I, I think... Um, that is something that people need to know exists because I didn't for so long. Um, but anyway, that's, that's so interesting. And, and so you also have a book, uh, what's the title of the book and, and what's it about? A survival guide for heretics. Mm-hmm. And it was published in 2016. And I wrote it as a, basically out of my experience, pastoring a community like central and mm-hmm. learning kind of, you know, how to work through some of these really difficult issues and how, if one still wants to identify as a Christian mm-hmm. <laughs> post, in a post-evangelical, maybe even post-theistic context, one can do so. And the book is really a guide to kind of help folks work through that transition and through those through those questions without being like, it's not like I'm being like the Bible answer man right, or, right. you know, here's, here's the way to think now. But um, <laughs> it's more about how to live in the tension uh, of those yeah, questions. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's the book. That's so interesting. Um, it's on Amazon. I noticed I'm going to It is, series. like everything else, yes. <laughs> but, um, I talked a little bit on my previous episode, actually, with my guest, um, Dinah. And we talked about, like, you know, once you leave that fundamentalist religion, um, it's like, okay, am I still a Christian? Am I not? And, and if right. I want to be, like... Uh, I, I use the analogy of almost like, okay, there's some good stuff there that I want to hold on to, but it's like stuck in chewing gum to this other gunk that I need to get rid of. And like, how do I parse that apart? And it's such a messy thing to do and time consuming the rest of your life journey, like yeah. you mentioned. And uh, yeah, so I think a, a book like that sounds very helpful. Um, well, yeah. So 
when we chatted also you talked about the film that you selected today and it's a film i had never heard of but it has some yeah. some some buzzy actors and stuff in it kind of before they were big um uh, so tell us about the film what is it uh, who who's in it and who made it and uh some of those what's it about yeah sure so the film is the believer which features Ryan Gosling uh, as a burgeoning actor. I think it's maybe, I don't know if I would call it his breakthrough film, but it's mm -hmm. certainly an early film for him. Mm -hmm. And as you put it, it was, it is kind of obscure um, and perhaps because of its subject matter as well. Mm, yeah. Um, I forget the name of the director right now. Maybe can you can. Up, yeah. yeah, yeah, thanks. Henry but, Bean, writer, director. There you go. Yeah. And there's a great um, interview with him that comes attached with, you know, a purchase of the film, uh, which, which of course I have. Um, and, and the film is basically, it's based on a true story, loosely based on a true story mm. of a Jewish kid. I want to say a kid, but it was really a man mm. in uh, New York, I believe in the seventies or eighties who became a neo-Nazi and was sort of, um, well, not sort of, he was quite secretive about his Jewish heritage. Mm. And, and the story really explores kind of the internal um, deconstructive dialogue he was having with himself during that time. And, and it's just a fascinating idea, right? A yeah, neo-Nazi yeah. Jew uh, living in New York, you know, in the modern world, right? Um, and so what I loved about that film, what spoke to me about that story, which again is based um, loosely on, on a true story, was just how powerful and meaningful his internal struggles were with his mm -hmm. faith and how dialectically this, this, the film is really dialectical. And that to me, that means basically through the negation or through the rejection or the attempted rejection of his faith, he actually found what was really important or meaningful about his faith mm -hmm. in that. So in, in a sense, his, he became sort of an atheist, but he couldn't let go of his respect for his faith. And mm -hmm. so, you know, throughout the film, there's these scenes where Ryan Gosling's character is, um, you know, absolutely denying, you know, uh, God and also hating on Ju Judaism and being a total anti-Semite, but yet he holds like deep faith and or affinity, I would say, not faith, mm -hmm. but affinity for his Jewish heritage. So he's dating this girl throughout it and she's in his apartment and they're naked and she's reading the Torah naked. And he says, whoa, 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 you're not supposed to be, you, you mm. cannot be before the Torah naked. His rules about this stuff. Yeah. And she's like, and, and she wants to learn Hebrew and she's a neo-Nazi as well. And she wants to learn Hebrew because she thinks it's beautiful. And he's like, it is beautiful, but I'm not sure if I want to teach it to you. Mm. And she's, and so she's kind of like expressing that she wants to uh, explore Judaism and he's like reluctant to help her. And eventually he does. And she's like, we should go to, we should go to temple. We should go to temple. And he's, and he's just like, um, what, you know, basically reluctantly helping her do all this stuff. And she's, she's questioning like, what's, you know, why, why do you like this? You, you say it's all like God is nothing and, and faith is nothing. Um, and it's nothingness without end. It's, it's all it is. It's nothing. And it's nothingness without, without end. And the Jewish faith is entirely um, nonsensical. It has all these rules that don't make any sense. Why do you, what, what, why do you want to follow it? Or why do you still care about it? And basically he articulates this kind of dialectical understanding where, you know, through the embrace of nothingness, he finds meaning. And, and it's just really interesting mm -hmm. 
for, for that. And I was at a place when I first saw it, I was at seminary, I was still in Fuller, where I was really trying to work through theodicy, these, these questions about suffering mm-hmm. and how can we reconcile the, the existence of a loving, all-powerful God with the gratuitous amount of suffering and death that we see in the world. And I would spend you know, hours every night. I'd stay up practically all night writing and, and trying to work this stuff out for, just for myself at first. And a lot of this went into my book you know, uh, 15 years later, 10 years later. But I saw that film at a time in my life where I was really wrestling with these questions and the dialectical way that he was able to both reject and accept his, his faith, his Jewish faith. And at the end of, end of the film, I don't want to ruin the film for people who haven't seen it. I don't want to like, um, you know, obviously give out too many spoilers, but I need, I need to be careful about how, how much I explain. But there's this, again, there's this dialectical way that he comes back to his faith where he's not, he, he doesn't get any of his questions answered, but, but through the kind of pursuit of answers or through the kind of radical acceptance of his, of, of his unknowing, he comes back to his faith and, and it's beautiful. Um, does that make sense? I I'm trying yeah. to, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I'm trying to say that's what was so beautiful about the film for me mm-hmm. was the dialectical relationship between his rejection of his faith and that being a path back to his faith, but not as a way of not not as a way of reaffirming any kind of strong theism, but as a kind of a radical acceptance of the inherent nonsensical nature of life, the nonsensical nature of faith, as as a symbolic, you know, representation of the nonsensical and absurdity of life. You know, faith is nonsensical. Faith is absurd in so many ways. In, not just Judaism, but Christianity as well. And through the kind of acceptance of that truth, it can represent or symbolically, you know, give space to a kind of radical acceptance and an embrace of the absurdity, the chaos, and, and the nonsensical nature of life and existence itself. Um, and, and for that reason alone, his faith became meaningful again to him. And that was true for me as well. Mm-hmm. And that's why the film meant so much to me. Yeah, yeah, I love the the scene where um, he and his neo-Nazi buddies are going to go, uh, they're actually planting a bomb about yes. midway through the movie, and they go into this temple, and they're vandalizing it and tearing it apart, and then his friends grab the Torah, and yeah. it, it's like, he, it almost seems like it surprises himself that he's like, no, you can't mess with that. Like he, like he really, it's uh, I I love that moment where I think that's maybe a moment of recognition and they ends up taking it home after they tear it up and he takes it. Yeah. To repair it. Repairs it and and is so loving about it in private. Um, But then, yeah, like you're talking about his girlfriend, he ends up having these kind of dual tracks where he's at home secretly teaching her Judaism. And then he's been hired by this fascist organization to teach neo-Nazism. And so there's like cutting between he's in class, you know, talking about why we hate the Jewish people and all this terrible stuff. And then he's at home like teaching Hebrew and, Yes. And then, and yes. then, even when he's like speaking at one of these fascist meetings in mm. this, you know, this high-end New York condo with all of these yeah. rich neo Nazis, he actually says the way that we defeat the Jews is by loving them. The, yes. the, the, the Jew needs needs us to hate them, and our hate is what empowers them to take over the world. Mm. The only way to defeat the Jew is to love them. We should love the Jew and fully accept them and affirm affirm Judaism. This is how we defeat them because the, you know, and it becomes this weird contradictory way, yeah. you know, dialectically for him to kind of come back to his. And, it, and of course, it's nonsense. Uh, and but again, it's kind of beautiful in the way that he works his way back. Um, 
you know, he, there's just so many great scenes like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of another, and you brought up the one in the temple where his neo-Nazi friends, you know, vandalize the temple and vandalize the Torah and he repairs it. Uh, but there's, there's another one I was thinking of um, that was really good. Anyway, maybe it'll come to me in a minute, but yeah, there's so many good scenes like that. Yeah. Just on a f- filmmaking level, I, I really think the script is really impressive for this. Like I, I, again, I was, I had never heard of this and um, as I got into it, like there's so much like getting into theology stuff and getting into the mindset of a neo-Nazi, which is a nasty place to be, but it's like right. so interesting to see how people can, um, like I like the scene where he's being interviewed by this journalist, which ends up going really bad. Um, But, but he spends the first several minutes like talking about like, here's why I I believe these neo-Nazi things. And like he, he, um, with conviction. And, and that's another point is that Ryan Gosling in kind of indie mode like this is my favorite Ryan Gosling. Like he can do the la la land stuff and he's great at that. But like um, this or like drive is kind of like a similar like mode of him like being more serious and um i just think it's really great yeah. um but yeah just the that kind of the towing the line between the two things um so like what felt familiar to me about some of this again i'm not jewish i grew up evangelical christianity um but having like the, where he's having these parallel tracks where he's like he knows both sides of this argument so well that he's able yes. to like teach it <laughs> like yes. having so many doubts for years. Like I've been in this fundamentalist religion. I, I, I know all the right answers over here yet at the same time, I have all these, and I've heard these arguments my whole life too. And like slowly moving to that other side of being like, okay, these things that I've always doubted, what if that's true? And like, is that okay? And like the fear surrounding, like asking those questions, of course, this is a very extreme version <laughs> looking at Judaism and neo-Nazism, and right? But but the the split in two nature of that I understood and like I felt that and I love so like the the scene the, the whole film opens he's like working out in his apartment and then he's having these flashbacks to being in school and Hebrew school and learning all about Judaism and like I I immediately took a note of this because it, it seems to me like the times when I'm like <laughs> he's he's in his apartment working out kind of like spacing out like when I'm mowing the lawn or like when I'm doing something yeah. really wrote like that is when I have these like flashbacks like oh I, I forgot about this experience and those things come up uh, but then so much like that that scene comes up again and again where it's and we get bits and pieces more of it as he's arguing with his teacher as a child and I just think that's so key that that's a part of this and is like you know, from a young age, these things are instilled in us and it's, yes. it's hard to, to pull them out because of that. And, uh, and also they're arguing about the story, um, in which Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And he, you know, he pushes back in a way that's very, uh, you know, controversial for his classmates then. And, and, and then as we see it play out, like he gets really upset and storms out and, uh, but they're arguing about the nature of God essentially. And, yes. um, is God someone to be loved or to be feared? And he, he says, God is, God is the villain in this story. He's just messing with, with Abraham and saying, go kill your son just because I'm powerful. And I say so. Yeah. Yeah. The the lesson he takes away uh, and he's following a particular midrash, he says, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the lesson basically of that story, he says, is that God is everything and we're nothing. You want to know how Mm. powerful I am? Look, I can even make you kill your own son because I'm everything Mm. and you're nothing. And that, was kind of the point for him at that at that point in his life of, of his faith of Judaism of you know and he rebelled and understandably so you know like why would we worship this this tyrant this this deity right mm-hmm. um, which was a fascinating point of view and it's probably you know 
you know, I would assume because uh, Judaism is so much more comfortable with atheism post-Shoah, right, post-Holocaust uh, than Christianity is. But uh, uh, but even within Judaism in general, even in the Middle Ages, um, they were so much more comfortable with, with questioning God, questioning the text. You know, this idea of biblical inerrancy is totally evangelical and not really shared by, by Jewish, you know, tradition. Um, and I think you see that on display in this film, this, mm -hmm. this, 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 uh, this honoring of, of questioning and, uh, and wrestling with God. Of course, the name Israel itself means one who, one who wrestles with God. And I think mm -hmm. that this film really embraces that as a way of saying that this, this too is a kind of faith, um, questioning everything, deconstructing everything, uh, you know, and in a sense, approaching one's faith that way, in a weird way of honoring it, uh, and a weird way of, of holding it close. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And that that whole mindset about like the way he feels about God in that story, that got back to something that has been a theme for me uh, is, is just realizing to what degree like what we believe about God affects the way we live. And so yeah. if you believe in a primarily angry God that you should fear, you're, that's going to play out in your life in one way. If you believe in a primarily loving God who's radically loving, then that's going to play out in a very different way. And you, you can see like from this early age, he had this really negative view of God that um, must have played into, you know, where where his life ends up going. Right. Um, yeah. Let's see. I have other favorite scenes here. I really connected with this film. Um, let's see. Yeah, just the relationship between like he he goes into this the, yeah this apartment of like these fascists uh, these rich fascists and, and like the relationship between them who seem less extreme than he is um, yeah he's like but they're also pretty comfortable with the things he's saying with the horrible things he's saying and um they they kind of see him it almost reminded me of like um clockwork orange or something where like we're going to sure. reform this guy and make him the poster child but like we're gonna we got to capture this energy of this really um radical guy and, and use him in our um which you know that's striking me now like that's what youth groups do too we'll find the really <laughs> go-getter kids and make them leaders in the youth group and that that whole yeah, idea right, too. right yeah. right well and also those scenes you know speak to the fact that the best critiques of a system the best critiques of a religion really erupt from the interior of it and not from the outside. And, you know, what made Daniel is, is the character's name, what made him such a powerful, uh, you know, an articulate, um, you know, crit critiquer, I guess you would say, skeptic, uh, a critic, critic of um, Judaism was the fact that he was Jewish, you know, and, and of course that was hidden from the, his neo-Nazi friends, but it should have occurred to them, you know, you know, the old line, me do think he protests too much, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's probably a good reason why this guy is so good at critiquing Judaism. He's Jewish, you know, and again, it reminds us of the fact that, you know, even for, for me and so many of us, so many of your listeners, I assume, who are post-evangelical, the best criticisms, the, you know, come from within the system um, and erupt within it because they must, because the system is corrupt and broken uh, and, and not meeting our needs. And therefore, you know, we are insiders. We, we understand it best because we were true believers. Um, so I think that's, that's awesome. I, th I think that's, that's also a really interesting dynamic that is true for so many of us, whether we're Jewish or Christian or, is, or Muslim or whatever, you know, the best critiques erupt from within this, the, the system. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that. Yeah, there's a scene I think where they kind of question, like, how do you know so much about this? And he, his response is, "You should know more about it. If you're going to yeah, hate it, you yeah, need yeah. to know this thing." I he points to him. I think he points to Himmler and says, "What mm-hmm. you know? You know, Himmler studied Torah. The, the Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he knew Hebrew. He studied Hebrew. He was dedicated to, in a, in a weird kind of way, he was obsessed with Judaism mm-hmm. in order so that he could hate it better. Uh, yeah. But in a weird way, there's kind of like, well." you seem to love this stuff as much as you, as you hate it. If you're studying it that hard, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you know, there's truth to that, you know, um, a lot of ways, atheism is, is shows a kind of fidelity to theology. There's in some ways, atheism is deeply theological and committed mm-hmm. to theological inquiry. Um, so there's something dialectically beautiful about that. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you reference a scene uh, as well already, but that he and his girlfriend are talking um, and I, I jotted down notes of like, here's the cliff notes of what they say. I, I really like this conversation. Um, something about like within this faith, you're not supposed to, you know, look at God or think about God too much or like, um, uh, she's like, what's the difference between that and God not even existing? And yeah. he says, well, there is no difference. Um, but then she says, you know, Christianity might be silly, but at least there's something to believe in. Yeah. Uh, and then his response is Judaism isn't about belief. It's about doing things, keeping the Sabbath, lighting candles, visiting the sick. And so that made me immediately think about like legalistic Christianity. But then uh, I like what he says next too. he says, well, you don't do it because it's smart, because it isn't. You don't do it because it saves you because it doesn't. You do it because the Torah tells you to and you submit to yeah. the Torah. And I, I yeah. just thought that was such an interesting um, way of, of thinking about faith. And that's kind of what you were saying earlier. But um, that whole exchange I thought was was very interesting and um yeah. yeah. And I think for us, I think for us, you know, Christians, we hear that and we're like, what? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me, but we have to remember that for there's different definitions of faith. And, and frankly, you know, maybe even for us, if we're really honest, you know, what, what works for us in our faith are the, are the shared values and practices and the community mm-hmm. aspect. And, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what they really believe anyway. And mm-hmm. so maybe what really attracts us to our church or to our faith are, are the shared values, the shared practices, the liturgy mm-hmm. and the community aspect that we get mm-hmm. from all of that, from gathering, you know, at a building at, or gathering for prayer service or, you know, it's, it's, it's the practice of it. And maybe there's something true about that for us as human beings that we, that we need shared practices and mm-hmm. shared, shared values, things that we construct community around. We just need that. And, it can be anything. It can, it can be a, it can be a religion that doesn't make any sense whatsoever that, you know, nobody really believes in Santa Claus, but everybody still celebrates Christmas. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be like that. And there's, there can be some beauty in that. There, there, there can be some depth in that. And, and yeah. um, it's just really fascinating. You know, I, I, in my mind, this, this, this film just keeps bringing me back to Daniel's repeated refrain, you know, it, Judaism is about nothing, nothingness without end. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for him, that is the point of struggle with him. And even in his interview with um, that New York Times reporter in the cafe, where he brings up, Daniel brings up Marx, Freud, and Einstein, mm-hmm. right? And, he's, and he says, you know, since, since our people left the ghettos of Europe, you know, we've, we've had Marx, Freud, and Einstein, and what have they given us? Mm. But, not, you know, but the atom bomb, relativity, and, inf- and infant sexuality, right? And he's, he's like, this is a perfect description of, of Judaism, right? It's just nothingness. It's, it's pure relativity, pure abstraction, 
It's just nothingness without end, right? Um, and I, you know, obviously that's an anti-Semitic, you know, approach to it and a reductionistic approach that's not fair. And I'm not trying to applaud that in any way. But but there's this idea that I think even within, you know, Judaism isn't the only religion that struggles with making sense. You know, Christianity and you know, obviously struggles with that too. But there's this, there's this wonderful idea in the film that I keep coming back to, and it's Daniel's capacity to embrace nothingness, to embrace the, the, the possibility of meaninglessness and absurdity, and that maybe faith, when it's all said and done, maybe the best thing that our faith and religions have to offer us is, is the courage to be, to really be in this world where we're left in total darkness and mystery and, and you know, with questions of nothingness and meaninglessness and the ability to still love life and embrace beinghood and to, um, to just keep searching, to keep asking the tough questions and, and to kind of embrace the nothingness. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's faith. Uh, and I think that's ultimately the faith that Daniel comes back to through Judaism. I think he fully embraces his Judaism as a way of, of embracing the, the, the difficulties of life and being. And I think that can be true for any faith, be it Christian, Christianity or Judaism or whatever. So yeah. that's, th th that to me is where I wanted to take things today. Yeah. I, I love all that. And, um, yeah. Well, that is The Believer, a uh, really, really interesting film. I watched it on Tubi TV. It's streaming there, uh, although I think I need to probably buy a copy of this because it's one that I'm going to want to revisit. Absolutely. Um, thank you for recommending this film. I, uh, You're welcome. I was I'm so happy to have seen it. And um yeah, that's that's the film. Thanks so much for joining us too. And and you know what you're saying about like, you know, embracing nothingness or um, getting to those places of like the community aspect is so important. Um, and I think so many people are kind of like again, like I said earlier, like a longing for a community where you can do those things to support each other yeah. without having to embrace toxic beliefs. And um, I think that uh, it's so important that there are churches like yours and 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 others that are kind of figuring out how to do that in some way so um yeah i think that's great thanks so much for joining me today and uh i i really appreciate you being here thank you so much for having me i had a lot of fun huge thanks to aaron for that fascinating discussion a reminder there is a bit of spoiler talk at the very end of the episode so stick around if you want to hear that but for the episode proper, that is it. Stick around for next time. I'm planning to review the new film, Cyrano, from director Joe Wright and starring Peter Dinklage. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes now, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com shop. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter. That is at arthousegarage.com subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.
Okay, if you stuck around to hear the brief spoiler discussion of The Believer, here it is. Spoiler warning for the end of the film. Okay, we're going to do a little spoiler talk. Here we go. Um, so I want to talk about the ending of this film. And for, for one thing, this is like not just the very ending, but I, just a scene that I really loved. And that is, so there's like a, a flashback. So he has the flashbacks to his childhood, but he also has this vision. Uh, at one point, because of their crimes, they're forced to talk to some Holocaust survi- survivors. And that's yes. a really interesting scene. And he, one of them talks about this horrible experience where his, his child was killed in front of him. And... Um, Ryan Gosling's character uh, berates him and says, you know, you should have done something. You should have tried harder. One of the other guys says the Holocaust never happened. And so like, there's a whole infighting about that as well. But um, then he sees the vision where this is happening. He like kind of pictures it happening to this, this man, his child dying. And then he sees himself as the soldier. uh, And like, he's, he's the one holding the gun and, and doing this. And then at the very end of the film, that, that, comes back again where we see him as the soldier and he's also the father and i love yeah. that like again just a way to depict that he's torn in two in such a way that he like sees both sides of this and doesn't know what to do so that was a great scene um so what happens with the ending is he uh they plant another bomb and he kind of makes it so that he's going to be on stage when it goes off um and you know uh, uh, davening which i that's i don't know much about judaism but it's kind of like preaching i guess he's on the stage doing um uh giving part of the service um and he seems to like they're singing and he seems to really kind of decide to fully embrace this like right at the he knows his life is about to end um to embrace i guess the sort of the good angel on his shoulder and not the bad one and he evacuates the temple right uh, but then he goes back on stage and um, the, the the scene kind of flashes to white. And so the implication is that he's uh, died. At least that's how I read it. And then we get this really interesting kind of coda where he's back in the temple or back in the Hebrew school, but he's his adult self and he's going up the stairs and his teacher is there trying to sort of um, engage with him about, about faith. And he just is walking past and ignoring him, but he just keeps going up the stairs, up the stairs, up the stairs. And it's clear that it's a never ending staircase. Yeah. So I wanted to see here, I have a couple of ideas of maybe what this ending might mean, but I wanted to hear what, what you had to say about it. Yeah, it's a great ending. Well, again, he's back in the Hebrew school and he's back with his rabbi who he debated about the Abraham and Isaac passage. Mm-hmm. And his rabbi is saying to him as he's passing him by repeatedly, on these landings, right? The staircase never ends, but on every landing is the rabbi where he says, Daniel, I want to talk with you about the Isaac story because I actually now think you've got something there. I think you mm-hmm. might be right. And, um, you know, and he keeps telling him, you know, trying to stop him and, and engage with him. And Daniel ignores him and just walks past him, trying to get up the staircase, mm-hmm. trying ostensibly, in my opinion, you know, to reach heaven, right? Mm-hmm. To reach God. His whole point is to, is to ascend and to question the Almighty, right? He's mm-hmm. he's ascending. He's, he doesn't want to debate the rabbi. He wants to debate God Himself, right? Mm-hmm. The and he's ascending the staircase in the afterlife. And and it, I think it's really it gives me chills. And I actually, when I first saw it, I wept. I mean, I really mm-hmm. cried. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being alone in my apartment, and my wife was at work watching this film and at the first for the first time and reaching that point at the ending. And I remember just crying because I was like. I, I feel just like him. I want to ascend on high and, mm. and question the creator because what the fuck, man, you know, I mean, seriously, <laughs> yeah. this world really. And, um, but there's, there was something so beautiful about that, 
because in a sense, Daniel got what he wanted, in my opinion. He wanted, he wanted to, 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 to get there. And, and if you watch to like the bitter end and you pay attention, he finally ascends into pure light itself. The, the, the staircase kind of gives way to pure light. And it's not clear whether he just keeps on going and, and maybe he does. And maybe that's kind of the message that, that this journey, this spiritual journey of faith is this never ending staircase that we just keep climbing in search of, you know, God in order to question him. But in reality, there's nothing there. And the only thing that's there and that's real, are the questions themselves, hmm. but the questions themselves are profoundly meaningful and say something powerful about us as human beings. You know, where do these questions come from? Why do we wrestle with this? I think those are the interesting questions maybe. So that's, that's, that's yeah. how I look at the ending. Um, it's like not an ending. It's, an, it's a never ending staircase. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I really like that. And, and so I had sort of two of, of two minds. My first thought was like, oh no, is this like his personal hell where he's just stuck in Could his be. past and he's in yeah. a never ending loop trying to, and you know, this, this rabbi here representing his doubt or something. Yeah. But I, I like the, the more positive take is what I thought was similar was just like, maybe this is a metaphor for faith itself is that you have to like keep going, even though you have this doubt and like maybe eventually he realizes this staircase is, is what what we have and maybe yep. eventually his rabbi goes with him and they like walk together and and can commune or something that that's the the hopeful reading of it but yeah, yeah. i really like that i think it is probably somehow talking about like kind of embracing the nothingness like you said earlier like i think that phrase is captured in the the visual of a never-ending staircase of, yeah. of what faith and, is. and remember the rabbi on the staircase says daniel i, I agree with yeah. you now you have mm-hmm. something there in those questions. Let's talk about that. And Daniel blows him off at each landing, but he's the rabbi is saying, Daniel, let's talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and may, maybe that's like God saying, you know, Daniel, you got a point. <laughs> let's talk about it. You know, I don't, yeah. So, or it, like the whole idea of midrash, maybe like you know we can have these this conversation and this doubt, right. but it's we never arrive at an answer, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's precedence for that. Real quick, there's precedence yeah. for that throughout Judaism. That it's mm-hmm. not like this story is the first to right, uh, right, right, wrestle right. with this. There's a great joke, if I might, real quick. There's a great yeah. joke in Judaism. Um, the two rabbis are sitting on a bench debating some passage out of the Torah. And all of a sudden a light comes out of the sky and God, you know, says, all right, I've had enough of the argument and the debating. Let me tell you what this passage really means. And here it is. And the rabbis hear God out and then they look at each other and they say, who asked you go away and let us debate this. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. That's, that's kind of the Jewish tradition. And, you know, in, in so many ways as, as yeah, you get the joke. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And uh, yeah, thanks for talking spoilers as well. Yes, my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Absolutely.